0: So, uh, before we jump into the message, there are a couple things I just want to update you on. One is we did our silent auction, and the culmination of that was last Sunday, and we did that for REAP Granada, our missions ministry partners in Granada, Nicaragua. And we did that because of all the civil unrest that's going on there, the jobs that are not in, in, existence, in existence, and how Reprenata is helping out with that, helping out with food and all that kind of stuff, right? So that's why we're raising the money. Well, I want to let you know that we had a goal for that. I don't know if you saw that our goal was to raise $3,000, and I just wanted to reveal to you what that final number was. So there you go, $3,135.80. And so I just want to say, I mean, that's, that's going to go a long way in Nicaragua in helping people. Um, and I just want to say thank you to all of you that donated, uh, those of the, you that gave, uh, that you came. You're part of that, the lunch, all that kind of stuff. And I also want to uh, thank Chris Chamberlain. Uh, he, yes. Chris, why don't you come on up and, uh, <laughs> no, I was just joking. <laughs> Uh, Chris, Chris did a great job. He knocked it out of the park. He's our missions uh, ministry team leader. Uh, and He just he, he did a great job with that, and so I wanted to say thank you to him as well. The second thing is, uh, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, you, you know, you don't plan things like a country's civil unrest, and you don't plan things like natural disasters like Hurricane Florence coming through, and that all kind of culminated around the same time. And so I'd mentioned a couple weeks ago that we're working on Hurricane Florence relief and recovery opportunities. And so we've got three of those coming up, and so I just wanted to let you know about that. Uh, You can go to velocitychurch.info. Some of those dates are coming up real fast. Like the first trip uh, is gonna be the week of October 7th. And so I know everybody's got different work schedules and responsibilities and all that kind of stuff, but uh, we're gonna try to keep you updated throughout the week about those trips and opportunities to help. But if you know that you can get a couple days off sometime during that week, the first half of the week, we're gonna be going to Wilmington, North Carolina. Working with a church down there. The second half of the week, uh, Jackie Worrell is going to be leading a trip with Eight Days of Hope, who we've worked with in the past uh, for relief efforts. And so you can go down there. You'll be going down to New Bern for that. And then sometime around early November, we're working on a second trip down to New Bern as well. Uh, and that would be uh, just some great opportunities for you to look and see how you might help. Uh, there are probably going to be some equipment and supplies. Uh, that we might need or could take down with us and stuff. So we'll send out an email and keep you updated on that. But if you have any interest in actually going on some of those or availability, go to velocitychurch.info and let us know about that. So we've had this sermon series called With God. And I told you guys last week that even before we'd even gotten halfway through the sermon series and now we're finishing it today, that was already my favorite sermon series of the year. And it's just because... I, I, I didn't say this in first service, but I was feeling it and wanting it to come across during the message, but this, this is transformative. How we view God and how we understand how he views us, it is transformative for our life. It changes how we live. It changes how we operate this side of heaven. And there are a lot of natural ways that we kind of fall into in our lives and how we relate to God, how we go about living and, and what our hopes and dreams are and and the decisions that we make that, that are kind of uh, directed just by our life experience but when we truly understand what god wants to communicate about how he wants to live with us this side of heaven man <laughs> how close it is to how he wants to live with us in heaven it it will change your life and so we're talking about a life with god and we've talked about the surrender that comes from a life with faith and the purpose that comes from a life with hope And how these become accessible to us when we let go of our need to control our fears and put our trust in God. Give the creator uh, control over ourselves. And faith and hope are powerful in their own right. But the need for them is only temporary. Did you know that? Once we're with God in his presence, we don't need faith and hope anymore. Because we're with him. But there is one thing that lasts throughout all eternity. And there's one thing, there's one pillar in a life with God that is even greater. And it, may, it might sound cliche, but it's love. You remember the love chapter? Some of you have heard that if you've gone to a wedding. you probably heard some verses read from it. I read, read from the love chapter at weddings. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13. This is how Paul ends that chapter. He says, Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. This is the superior way over any other gracious gift that we've received from God that he wants us to have. God's definition and the experience of his love is what makes faith and hope in him so uniquely invaluable. And it's love that's meant to define how God chooses to relate to us and how we relate to him and to each other. Love is the distinguishing characteristic of those who follow Jesus. It's not romantic love, it's not brotherly love, it's the agape love that God has for us. It is the unconditional self-sacrificing godly love that transcends any circumstance. And that is the love over and over that we're called to have for each other and for the world. Here's what Jesus says in John chapter 13 verses 34 through 35. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another, And when Jesus says this, he doesn't just use this word for love as the, here's the noun, here's the thing that you need to think about and that you need to feel when it comes to how you relate to me and relate to the world around you. No, when he says you need to love one another, he's, he's talking about this in a verb form. It is the action that we take as we live out our faith with God. It's not represented by how we feel, but how we treat and how we live with each other. Let me give you an example of this. In 1994 in Tijuana, there's a huge prison. It's called the La Mesa prison. Uh, I think right now they hold somewhere around 8,000 prisoners. But in 1994, they have riots all the time, but this particular one was a little bit different. They had a riot breakout. Uh, Their hostages taken. There were people being killed. The electricity was cut. Military was coming to surround the prison. Uh, the family members of the prisoners inside were standing outside. It was going to be bad because the military was going to go in and they were going to clean up. But there was an 82-year-old woman who showed up. She was out doing some shopping, and she went to the warden. And she said, let me go in and let me talk to the prisoners. He said, no, no, it's too dangerous. You, you, you shouldn't go in there. This is a bad idea. But she said, no, let him go in. And, and the warden does. And so Sister... Uh, Mother Antonia, the five-foot, two-inch nun at 80, 82 years old, walks through the prison. And the prisoners are calling out to her, and she's saying, Mama, Mama, that's, that's what they, were, they, they would call her, said, Don't come in here, you're going to be killed. And she kept calling them her sons, said, my sons, you've got to stop. She continues to walk through the prison, and more and more prisoners start to gather around her, really to protect her more than anything and they gather around her and she gets down to where all of the fighting is happening and once the prisoners start saying hey mama mama is here everybody stops and she calls out to them and she says my sons put the guns down we have to stop the violence i know conditions in here are terrible i know they're not the way that you want them to be but we cannot we cannot act this way she says give me the weapons god is watching god is with us and we're going to help you and the prisoners lay down their weapons and the riot came to an end. And you might think, why in the world would they listen to this 80-some-year-old woman? It was because uh, Mother Antonia wasn't always Mother Antonia. When she was 50 years old, as Mary Clark, she made the decision to move to the La Mesa prison to live in a 10-by-10 cell in the prison and care for these prisoners. She was so compelled by her experience of the love of God in her life, that she took this command to love one another very literally and very seriously in her life. And it wasn't because she was some perfect person. Mary Clark had two divorces. She grew up rich in Beverly Hills. She was a socialite. She had seven children. And she, you know, worked the family business and that kind of thing. But she was confronted with the fact that over and above anything else and any other experience in life, God loves us. And God expects us to share that love with others. She said, after she was asked about how she felt about this and why she did this, she said, I'm hard on crime but not on persons. Everyone deserves to be treated with dignity. This is how Mary Clark felt compelled by her experience of God's love to share that love with others for 36 years of her life. She stayed there until she was 86 and passed away. And this is how she was compelled to treat enemies. I, I mean, these are the enemies of society. She's treating prisoners this way. How much more powerful is this love that Jesus commands us to, to love for each other. In John chapter 13, Jesus is telling his disciples that the world will know that they are his followers by how they love each other. That's an impressive love. That's an awe-inspiring love. But it's also one that most of us probably feel would be difficult, if not impossible, to grasp this side of heaven. It's also the type of love that can't be shared until it's experienced. In a, world, in, a, in a world that is so divisive, this hurdle of love and a life with God is the most significant obstacle that we face. Here's what John writes in 1 John chapter 4 as he talks about and explains what Jesus means when he says we need to love one another. He says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. because he first loved us. Do you remember your first love? Can you, can you think back to that what was preschool or maybe in the nursery or something, you know, your parents, you know, tell you about these stories and stuff and how you held hands with this person and you maybe actually shared a toy with someone. That's how we show love in preschool. I don't know if you knew that. Or do you remember the first time, you know, a boy, you know, threw rocks at you, you know, or a girl giggled at your stupid jokes, you know, in school and stuff like that. They showed that they cared about you, showed love. Can you trace Like, as you look through the timeline of your life, all the different ways that you've shown love and been shown love in return. I hope you have some fond memories. Like, I hope that brings a little bit of smile to your face. But I also know that, like me, you'll have some bittersweet ones. And you'll have some that are just downright, outright painful as well. And I think one of the things that we experience, and I don't just think it, I know, and I've seen this and experienced it myself, is that, through each of the ways, and it's only natural, through each of the ways that we've been loved and loved in return by others, that, that's how we qualify and quantify how we think about love. Even, even God's love. We kind of base that on our own experience in how well we've been loved or how poorly we've been loved in our lives. And, and we've learned something along the way. And we've learned something that we need to unlearn to fully appreciate and understand the love that God has for us. And here's the thing. The first thing that we've learned in our broken, sinful way of loving each other, this side of heaven, is this lie. Is that love is conditional. So the love that we have for each other, somewhere along the way, as a kid, as you've grown up as a teenager, the experiences, circumstances that you've had in your life, the people, the way that they've taught you to love them, and the way that you've taught them to love you. like There's this thing that's kind of this seed of brokenness that's come into that, and it's this idea that love is conditional. It's based on how we feel in the moment, or the things that are happening around us. But here's the truth that we need that destroys this lie that we've learned, is that God's love is unconditional. This is the truth that we hold on to with faith and hope. It's the one thing that will overshadow and overpower any danger and fear that we hold on to because of the conditional love that we've experienced in our lives. Verse 10 in 1 John 4, this is how John defines love. He says, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And Here's what John is saying, and this cannot be overstated. John is saying that God knows, has known, and will know you at your very worst, and he still gave his very best so that you could know his love. His love is... Isn't conditional. There is nothing about your life. And there is nothing about my life. In the face of God's holy glory that is deserving of his love. Absolutely nothing. In fact the Bible calls our best. Paul calls our best filthiness before God. Yet in what should be a condemnation for our sin. God uses his goodness for our good. And sends Jesus to be with us. To redeem us for a life with him. You guys know the most famous love verse in the Bible. It's John 3.16. But don't forget about verse 17 too. For God so loved the world that he gave his only, one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And here's why it's so important to contextualize, to be reminded of how horrible we are or were before salvation and how undeserving of God's love that we were because it gives us the perspective of how deep the Father's love for us truly is and I get it it's it's not hard to think gee I'm not really that that terrible of a person like I'm not locked up in La Mesa prison in Tijuana bad there are a lot of worse people out there but the more you remember what you've been forgiven of and been forgiven to the more peace and joy you will experience in receiving God's love for us conditional love will always leave us empty. Conditional love produces things like the pursuit of power or success or beauty or relevance whether it's so you can treat yourself or so you can try to receive and earn love from others. The only way that we can lay down these empty pursuits is being confident in the unconditional love that we've already been given. This is how we experience a life with God. Here's what Henry Nouwen writes in Moving from Solitude, if you keep that in mind that God loves us unconditionally, if you keep that in mind, you can deal with an enormous amount of success as well as an enormous amount of failure without losing your identity because your identity is that you are the beloved. Long before your father and mother, but your brothers and sisters, your teachers, your church, or any people touched you in a loving as well as in a wounding way, long before you were rejected by some person or praised by someone else, that voice has been there always. I have loved you with an everlasting love. That love is there before you were born and will be there after you die. Completely undeserving, and yet we are the object of God's love. Completely no way to be able to earn it or attain it on our own, and yet God makes us the object of his love. And so we have a choice. And the choice is this, we can shape our own identity in our own pursuits of love, in our own broken ideals of what love should be and could be in our life, or we can allow God to shape our identity with his love. And he can be the object of our desire and love. If, if I were going to uh, kind of redo an introduction to the Bible, I would take the introductory verses of 1 John and put them right before Genesis. And the reason that I would do that is because I think it helps to contextualize why God gives us his word to know him. To be able to not, not understand him, but to, to know how he wants to relate to us and how he wants us to relate to our world around us. And here's what John John has all the best introductions, by the way. If you look in his, his gospel of John, he has the best introduction Um, If you don't know what that is, go read John chapter 1. It's amazing. Uh, But here's what he says. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it, we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Rewrite this to make our joy complete. And the reason I would use that kind of as an introduction to the Bible is to help us understand that the reason that we sing the words that we sing as we gather together in worship on Sundays, the reason we sing these words, we pray these words, we preach these words, we study these words, and the reason we live these words are to experience the life with God that He has set before us. God gives us in his Bible, his words, not as a demand to earn his love, but as commands for us to experience his love. They're to show us how to live a life with God. See, most of us end up in four different categories in how we relate to God because they are shaped by the brokenness of our world. We we've talked about this as a thread that we have woven over the last four messages, is that sometimes we find ourselves when we're not in a life with God, we're either in a life under God, a life over God, a life for God, or a life from God. And in each of those areas, it impacts how we think about our identity and what we pursue to be our identity this side of heaven. And this is what we wonder. In a life under God, we wonder, are am I a sinner? Is that my identity? Am I a despicable being living under the constant threat of God's wrath and punishment who must appease his will through strict obedience to moral and ritual commands? Is, is that who I am in Jesus? Or in a life over God, am I a manager? Am I an, an autonomous being who has been given a divine manual for operating my life and world and whose fate will ultimately rest upon how well I implement God's principles and instructions? Like, is that, that who I'm supposed to be? Or, or am I a consumer in a life from God? Am I discontent, you know, being comp- compromised, comprised of unmet desires and longings, who demands all things, people, and even God to orbit around me and fulfill my expectations? Or in a life for God, is my identity a servant? Is that who I'm supposed to be? A worker created to fulfill. A great mission, whose sense of valuable is inexorably linked to what I'm able to accomplish and the magnitude of my impact in the world. Like which, which one of those am I? Because we read through the Bible, we're going to find elements of truth from each of those things, but none of those things capture the identity of who God calls us, and that is that we are His children. Each of these other ways of relating to God, a life under, over, from, or for, are still our attempts to control our world rather than surrendering ourselves to the creator of our world. These are a form of law-keeping, trying to earn favor. While there are truths evident in each of these, none of them encompass the entirety of our identity in Christ that's found in a life with God. Here's how Paul describes this in Galatians chapter 3. He says in verse 23, Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up, until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. That's who you are as a disciple of Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That is your identity. As disciples of Jesus, we are children of God through faith, because when we were baptized, we were clothed with Christ. As a disciple of Jesus, you're not simply a sinner. You're not simply a manager of your life. You're not simply a consumer in life. You're not simply God's servant in this life. You are his beloved child. And, and I get like that, that can be one of the I, I don't even wh- what does that even look like? I, I, I get, like some of us are thinking, I, n- I don't know that that's something that I can even reach for or grasp or understand. And I, I understand that. And Paul does too. In First Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, he says this, again, the love chapter. He says, "For now we only see a, a reflection as, as if in a mirror." Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And I get you may not understand fully what God's love for you means. Maybe you feel like you've got to earn it, like I do. Maybe you feel like you've got to get your life cleaned up first. Maybe you feel like he owes you something first, because of how you've been loved, or rather unloved by others. But here's the light that shines through the dim mirror reflection that we have this side of eternity. Here's Here's the truth. You are fully known by God. You are fully exposed. He knows everything about who you are, who you've been, and where you're headed, and who you will be. And you are still fully loved. He still knew everything about who you are, and yet still sent Jesus for you. You are fully known by God, and you are fully loved. He calls you his beloved child. That is what a life with God looks and feels like. And if you feel stuck outside of a life with God, it's like, man, I, I just don't even know, like, where, where does that come from? Where do I experience that? How do I even get to that point in my life? Maybe it's because, Maybe it's because of all of your broken experiences of love throughout your life. And that they have kept you from pausing and being still in the truth that as a disciple of Jesus, as a follower of Christ, as a Christian, you are his beloved child. And that that is enough. That is the foundation upon which God wants to live a life with you and with me. That if we would pause for just a moment at some point during our day and push aside the pursuit of success, you know, the identities that we want to be relevant, to be beautiful, to be accepted, to be loved by everyone around us, and for our circumstances to be perfect and all of those things, if we would set that aside and give ourselves time and space to recognize and remember the truth that we're fully known and fully loved by God, that is the thing that will transform your relationship with God, how you relate to him and how you relate to people around you. And so I want to challenge you to do this. The first thing that I do in the morning is I look at my phone. Anybody with me? No? Okay. I'm the only one who does it. That's all right. And two other people who are actually honest, and that's cool. The first thing I do is reach for my phone. Do this with me. Take five minutes before you do anything else. Pretend like you're still asleep, even if your kids come and they're trying to wake you up and stuff like that. I mean, I do that anyway, but take five minutes and remind yourself of the truth of who you are in Christ. Remind yourself, I mean, maybe just repeat this sentence, I am loved by God and he's got me covered. Because it's in the stillness that you have the opportunity to know, to be still and know that he is God and to know who you are in him. Before you're distracted by everything else, for everything else that's pulling on you and your life, all the problems, whatever else is going along, that is the foundation that you need for your day and for your life, is to know that you're fully known by God and fully loved. Let's pray. God, God, I just ask that uh, your Holy Spirit reminds us, and not just this week, and not just for five minutes of of each day this week, if we even bother to, to do that, but to remind us daily throughout our entire lives that we are his children, that we are fully loved by him unconditionally. so, And that is why we are able to experience his love and to share it with others. That's that's how we can live out this command from Jesus, this new command from Jesus, to love one another, to not just think it or believe it, but to actually live it out. That's what makes this life with God possible, is that you love us with an unconditional love, that you took us at our very worst and still gave your very best to redeem us to you. God, help us to, to not only live within that truth and that love in our lives, but Help us share that love with others. Let that be the truth that that we share, is that love does not have to be conditional, that you make it unconditional for us. God, we thank you for that. We praise you for that. We honor you for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.